0: Hey everybody, welcome to The Scripture Study Project, our podcast that gives you a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you are learning to others. We are on World Cup Watch here at The Scripture Study Project. We were trying to find a creative way to work it into a lesson, a, a discussion, a centered around the World Cup. Krista was trying to think of a study tip that was World Cup themed, and we couldn't come up with anything, but...
1: I sort of came up with one.
0: Can we just geek out for a minute or two about the World Cup and how awesome the soccer has been? And if you are not a World Cup fan, if you're not a soccer fan, then we need to convert you to the beauties of soccer, especially international soccer and World Cup soccer. You should be watching the World Cup. Get rid of whatever other sports that you're watching. You should be watching the World Cup. That's our message.
1: That's the study tip.
0: That's our study tip. You should be watching the World Cup.
1: (laughs) That's a great one. It will improve your quality of life.
0: You really should, though. This World Cup, there's been 19 second half stoppage time goals, which is just awesome. And if you want to say that soccer is better or that basketball or that uh, football is better or that basketball is better, I have all of the arguments in the world to prove you wrong and to prove that soccer is by far the superior sport. So...
1: And now we're turning into a sports podcast.
0: There we are. But
1: but at least we mentioned World Cup. I'll now take, we can move on. I'll take
0: on Mike and Mike any day. Soccer is the king of all sports.
1: <laughs> That's right. Now no. moving on. Moving on. That feels good. Yeah. I'm glad we got that. we, we vented. ended. <laughs> okay. Our study tip for today. We are going to talk about some of you that maybe have... Um, well, if you were in seminary, then you know about Scripture Mastery. If you have students currently in seminary you might have heard about doctrinal mastery which is kind of the new focus in seminaries and institutes. I I think this ties in good with well I'll let Zach go from here and explain a little more.
0: Well the move to doctrinal mastery was just a couple of years ago and the idea behind it was under scripture mastery it had kind of turned into this uh, memorization game. I remember doing scripture mastery in seminary and it was Uh, It was all about memorization. We had teams that would uh, face off against each other with buzzers, and whoever could name the scripture that was being recited fastest hit their buzzer and won. We had it down to single words. We knew how many scriptures started with yea, verily, and how many started with yea, verily, verily. Uh, We would study after school. We had an all-100 scripture mastery team that won prizes and-
1: Zach's giving you a peek into his (laughs) high school school career.
0: um but no seriously my my best friend devin and i we would we had our special rings of scripture mastery cards and we would memorize in all everything. reality that's pretty awesome yeah that's um, why I married you. but but the the problem with it was is that's um while those verses were helpful memorized and i still can recite a lot of them um, what they noticed is a lot of students weren't able to teach or or explain doctrines using those scriptures Uh, They could recite them, but they couldn't teach them. And so the shift was to doctrinal mastery, which still has scripture references as part of it, but the emphasis is on the teaching of those scriptures rather than the scriptures themselves. Interesting enough, in Alma 34, which is our block today, Alma 33 through 34 is our block, um, there is an old scripture mastery verse and a new doctrinal mastery verse, and I think it showcases the shift from scripture mastery to doctrinal mastery. One of the major changes is in scripture mastery. The verses focused a lot on what's. So here's the scripture mastery from Alma 34, verse 32. Behold, this is life. This life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. And now, as I said unto you before, you have had so many witnesses. I beseech you, do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. That was the message. Don't procrastinate repentance. It's a what verse. It's all about what we should do. Now that's not wrong. I think we've had a study tip um, searching the scriptures for what you should do.
1: In fact, I love that verse. Mm-hmm. it like was one of those that really I thought often of those phrases because I had memorized. I think part of it right so we're not trying to say that memorizing is bad
0: anymore. no no nor are, are verses that focus on helping us know what we should do mm-hmm. but the shift to doctrinal mastery was to find verses that talk about why we should do what we should do so here's the doctoral mastery verse this is 34 verse 9 and 10 for it is expedient that an atonement should be made For according to the great plan of the eternal God, there must be an atonement made, or else all mankind must unavoidably perish. Verse 10, it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice, not a sacrifice of man, neither of beast, neither of any manner of fowl, for it shall not be a human sacrifice, but it must be an infinite and eternal sacrifice. That's a why verse. It's why we should do what we should do. Of course, don't procrastinate the day of your repentance, but why not? Well, because someone paid the price for you to be able to repent. And so our study tip is, as you're studying the scriptures, or as you're teaching the scriptures, identify within the scriptures the whys in addition to the whats.
1: I think the whys can be much more motivating. We see this switch happening in a lot of the church curriculum, I think for this reason. Mm -hmm. You think of Come Follow Me, the youth curriculum, and now it's rolling out in the Sunday school curriculums as well. The why is it just gives people a deeper meaning
0: in fact i was talking to finn today
1: that's our oldest son
0: he was downstairs and i was i gave him and his younger sister isla who's three the job at cleaning up the basement uh asked him to help her clean up her dresses and put them away and he was getting frustrated because she wasn't doing it so he came upstairs and he said dad she's not cleaning up she keeps pulling them back out and i walked down and and uh I said, well, how are you helping her? He says, well, I keep telling her what she should do. I keep telling her to put them away. And and so I took the moment to explain to him, Finn, if you really want to motivate someone, tell them why they should do it. So let's tell Isla why she should put away her dresses because it'll keep them off the floor and it'll protect them and people won't won't uh, stand on them or run on them or they won't get lost. And uh, it was kind of a fun little discussion, but case in point, right? The why is often more motivating, at least to three-year-olds. I think than to the
1: everyone. Why- I, I think there's... There's no coincidence that the youth curriculum came out first. Mm-hmm. Because I think especially the youth need to hear. So if you are a teacher of youth or have youth in your home, those teenage years, I think that's really important to remember the whys can be so motivating. I know for me, in my when I'm studying for myself, why is is a motivating question. Yeah.
0: Okay. So our block today, our study today is Alma thirty three through thirty-five, but it's part two, in essence, of what we started last week. This is Alma and Amulek and the other missionaries that are with them, their mission to the Zoramites. If you remember last week, we talked about the Zoramites, these poor Zoramites with failing faith and how they could grow their their testimony, their conviction that the seed, which is Christ, is good. Well, this week, we want to revisit the same problem, the same Zoramites, but from kind of a different perspective. So, have you seen those videos that are kind of all the rage on YouTube and Facebook and they always have the caption, You're doing it wrong. A lot of times they're workout videos where you see someone in a gym and they're I don't know, they're using the the rowing machine, but instead of actually rowing they're like sliding awkwardly on the seat or they're doing
1: I have never seen these.
0: You don't watch mindless Facebook videos quite like I do. I
1: need to <laughs> I need to do this a little more. Yeah, you do. You purposely don't tell me you're talking about these things. Because then you, huh? would not, you
0: wouldn't let me do them.
1: No, that that one sounds funny, though. I think I'd laugh at it. Well, out. there's a
0: whole bunch of them of you're doing it wrong. It's where it's obvious that there's a right way to do this, and you're doing it wrong. And it's laughable, but it's also uh, unproductive to have someone that's in, a, in a, on a workout machine that's not actually using it. They're not growing in any way. The Zoramites have actually a similar problem. This is Alma 31. There's a word that shows up a couple of times. Alma 31, verse 1. It came to pass that after the end of Korhor, which was two episodes ago, Alma, having received tidings that the Zoramites were perverting the ways of the Lord, and that Zoram, who was their leader, was leading the hearts of the people to bow down to dumb idols, again takes up his mission and goes there. Verse 11. Um, yea, and fine, they did pervert the ways of the Lord in very many instances. Therefore, for this cause, Alma and his brethren went into the land to preach the word unto them. And then verse 24, when Alma saw this, his heart was greedy, for he saw that they were wicked and a perverse people. Um, we, have kind of, we kind of have a limited view of what the idea or what the word perverted means. We use it to define perverted jokes or perverted humor. But to pervert something literally means to take something and turn it for bad so the connotation is that you take something that's good and you twist it into something bad which makes sense for perverted humor i'm taking something that's good and holy human intimacy or sexuality and i'm twisting it to make a mockery of it or to speak of it sarcastically or or grossly or inappropriately to get laughter so what the zoramites are doing is they're taking a couple of things in the gospel and perverting them And I don't think this is all that unfamiliar from things that we see today. In fact, we're going to talk about two big perversions the Zoramites are doing that we probably can identify with today and the damage that causes to us.
1: The words that stuck out to me in these verses, and actually right after these verses that Zach read here in verse 24, um, they were a wicked and a perverse people. He saw that their hearts were set upon gold, silver, all manner of fine goods, and then also their hearts were lifted up unto great boasting in their pride. And then in verse 27, their hearts were swallowed up in pride. That these perversions were ta- were often taking place in their hearts. Where is their heart set up What, I should say, where is their heart or what is their heart set upon?
0: I kind of have this image in my head of, um, well, th- this is real to me, um, when you're learning a a sport, if you've played the sport for any amount of time, and then you get an actual coach, sometimes what the coach has to do is go back and break old habits that you've been doing wrong so that you can progress. So I'd been playing tennis for a couple of years, just recreationally. And then in high school, I actually was on the tennis team with a coach. And a lot of what my coach had to do is say, no, you've been doing it wrong for a couple of years, and it's become ingrained, it's become habitual. And if you keep doing it that way, you'll never progress to the level you need to be. And so I'd become hardened in this practice that was damaging to me or blocking my progress. And here, what my coach needed to do was kind of break away that hardness, remove the perversion, and show me this is how you hold a racket. This is the right way to hit an overhand. This is the right way to hit a backhand.
1: That's funny. I have a very similar experience, which is almost laughable. Um, (laughs) I played in sixth grade. You know, I was playing big-time city league basketball. Big-time. And (laughs) I would shoot the basket. I take the ball behind my head. Okay, and like just throw it that way. I thought I had figured out the coolest basketball trick. <laughs> this is funny because I haven't thought of this forever, <laughs> sorry. And I just figured like I am going to like come out as the biggest star because I have this new form figured mm-hmm. out. And what's funny is and we're going to talk about this later as well. But my pride, like, it was all about, like, me. Mm. I was thinking, wow, I'm going to be so cool because I thought of this new trick. I'm going to be the new. Anyway, sorry, you should have said that tennis No, thing I, I like know. the
0: diversion. <laughs> I just, we won't have you teach our kids how to play basketball.
1: <laughs> yes, don't. I, I never got further than that.
0: So, case in point, perversions lead to hardness of heart. Mm. So, what we want to do is identify these two perversions that the Zoramites are propagating. And then teach or illustrate what Alma and Amulek in companionship teaching uh, do to correct their their perversion. So perversion number one. Uh, if you know the story, you know that the Zoramites have built this tower in the middle of their synagogue called the Rameumptim. They go up on top of the Rameumptim and they offer this prayer that is, well, I'll read it. Uh, this is verse 15. Holy, holy God, we believe that thou art holy. That thou art God, we believe that thou art holy, that thou wast a spirit, thou art a spirit, and thou wilt be a spirit forever. Holy God, we believe that thou hast separated us from our brethren, and we do not believe in the tradition of our brethren, which was handed down to them by the childishness of their fathers, but we believe that thou wast, that thou hast elected us to be thy holy children, and also thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no Christ. And then verse 20, For behold, every man did go forth and offer up these same prayers, and verse 23, After the people had offered up thanks after this manner, they returned to their homes, never speaking of their God again until they had assembled themselves together again on the holy stand to offer up thanks after this manner. And we were talking before, as we read through this prayer, of a couple of things that we identified that are perversions something that prayer is good and holy, but they've twisted some things in it that maybe we can identify with today, some things that we often do to prayer that. And that if we persist in doing it that way, could actually harden our hearts.
1: I think one of the first things we noticed here were these... It was really um, self-focused in their Mm. prayers. They talked a lot about, like, that we have been chosen to do this. We are going to do this. We've been elected.
0: We've been separated. Yeah,
1: which it becomes, you know, in contrast with Alma's prayer later on, where he's praying for other people a lot. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that's definitely that idea that we were talking about before of like that's a very me-centric idea in prayer which i
0: think if we're honest with ourselves if you're to evaluate your last prayer how much of your prayer was about you please bless me for this please bless me to have this please help me to have this please help mm-hmm. and uh and if we're thoughtful or at least in my prayers if i'm trying then i can maybe throw in a a blessing for someone else or a bless the missionaries or something like that but um how often are my prayers really mindfully focused on someone else? Mm-hmm. I think that's a big one.
1: The other one, you know, is obviously that they, they didn't offer up the same prayers. Mm-hmm. That was the only prayer, memorized prayers.
0: It's this very formalized process of prayer. I say my prayer at this time, and then I end my prayer at this time, and I don't ever talk about God or talk to God until I pray again. Now, I don't think we're quite as dramatic as only saying one prayer once a week when we stand on the Yemtum, but I did wonder, are we separating prayer time and non-prayer time? I say my morning prayer and then I'm done with my prayer. And then eight hours later, I say a prayer for dinner and then I'm done with that prayer. And then I say my nighttime prayer and I'm done with that prayer. We have these segmented prayers that kind of take the similar form. And the danger is because of this perversion, it can create a situation where our, our relationship with God becomes kind of stale and hardened. We don't feel as passionate about Him because we've been saying the same prayer for the last 15 years.
1: Yeah, in verse 23, they went home and never spoke of God again mm-hmm. until they had to go do their have their prayer time next time. And that really is definitely a perversion yeah. in how we're going to be taught what prayer is really supposed to look like.
0: So that's perversion one. Perversion two um, is in that prayer at the bottom of verse 16 Thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no Christ. The Zoramites are, are anti-Christ. And uh, I think there's a better sense of this perversion in verse, in chapter 33. Um, in the middle of one of Alma's prayers, verse 16, For behold, he has said, Thou art angry, O Lord. Oh, sorry, he's quoting Zenas here. Thou art angry, O Lord, with this people, because they will not understand thy mercies. Which thou hast bestowed upon them because of thy son, um, at the very beginning of chapter thirty three they send one of the Zoramites sends a kind of a, a member of their delegation to Alma to ask him some questions. Uh, this is verse one after Alma had spoken these words, they sent forth unto him, desiring to know whether they should believe in one God that they might obtain this fruit of which he had spoken or how they should plant the seed, or the word which he had spoken of, which must be planted in their hearts, or in what manner they should begin to exercise their faith. That's a lot of questions. Now, I don't think, again, that we're quite as far gone as believing that there is no Christ. But I do wonder, as we talked about this, we wondered, do we complicate Jesus Christ and his doctrine and his gospel? Um, Is our gospel that we study and preach sometimes so filled with uh, bits and pieces, gears that interlock, and we always hear discussions about deep doctrine and the the deep discussions. Do we do we overthink? Do we overcomplicate our relationship with the Savior?
1: I think so. One of the overarching themes that has been in my study over the past, I'd say, even few years, is this reoccurring theme. And these chapters teach this again. Is again the heart? Are we trying to understand everything with our mind, or are we letting mm-hmm. our heart be part of that process? Even, um, we're going to quote a, a lot from this recent general conference talk from president Nelson about revelation, but he talks about himself getting revelation in his heart and his mind. And when we're taking out the heart, whether through hardness, or maybe we're just only focusing on the mind answers, mm-hmm. then I think we're overthinking and not understanding what's really important
0: that's kind of that verse 16 that we read thou art angry because they will not understand the mercies and you're saying it's not just this isn't a mental comprehension it's a it's a spiritual comprehension they're refusing to accept or or understand christ in their heart they may conceptualize the principles of the gospel know who jesus is know the details of his life but they're not letting him in they're not applying their heart to understanding and we're going to get to
1: that yeah we're going to get to that in our solutions but like opening up your heart to okay. to who Jesus Christ is.
0: So, perversion one, they're saying rote, repeated, segmented prayers. Perversion two, they're overcomplicating their relationship with Christ. So, solution one, both Alma in chapter 33 and Amulek in chapter 34, um, teach something about prayer that sounds almost identical. This is Alma in 33, verse 4. Quoting Zenos, he said... Thou art merciful, O God, for thou hast heard my prayer even when I was in the wilderness. Yea, thou wast merciful when I prayed concerning those who were mine enemies, and thou didst turn them unto me. O God, thou hast merciful in me when I did cry in my field, and when I did cry to thee in my prayer, thou didst hear me again. And he goes on and on naming places where God has heard him and was merciful to him. In chapter 34, Amulek does almost the same thing. This is verse uh, 17. Therefore, may God grant to you, my brethren, that you may begin to exercise your faith unto repentance and call upon his holy name that he will have mercy on you. Yea, cry unto him for mercy, for he is mighty to save. Humble yourselves, continue into prayer, prayer unto him. Cry in your fields, in your houses, in your households, morning, midday, and evening. Cry uh, for the power over your enemies. Cry against the devil. Cry against the over the crops of your field. The idea being that prayer is not something that's segmented into prayer and non-prayer times, but something that is this ongoing conversation with God throughout the whole day.
1: I was once in a, I, I, I might've said this before, so but it's good, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. But I was once in a, I don't know, a fireside with Sherry Dew, and she was asked the question, like, how do you do what you do? And her simple answer was that she gets up every day and she asks God to show her where to be every minute of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to quote here from President Nelson. First off, he says, quoting Lorenzo Snow, This is the grand privilege of every Latter-day Saint, thats that it is our right to have the manifestations of the Spirit every day of our lives. And what Alma and Amulek are teaching us is that every moment too. He goes on to say, President Nelson One of the things the Spirit has repeatedly impressed upon my mind since my new calling as President of the Church is how willing the Lord is to reveal His mind and will. The privilege of receiving revelation is one of the greatest gifts of God to His children. Through the manifestations of the Holy Ghost, the Lord will assist us in all our righteous pursuits. I remember in an operating room I have stood over a a patient, unsure how to perform an unprecedented procedure, and experience the Holy Ghost diagramming the technique in my mind. Wow. I just love that. And I think you can see that he's talking about revelation comes through prayer. Mm-hmm. It comes through communication with God. And that is open to all of us.
0: Yeah, I think the idea here is there are times for formal prayers, but there are far more times for informal prayer conversations. President Eyring, uh taught this once. I can't remember when, but that his prayers were he would start in the morning by talking to God and then throughout the day he would check in and talk to him and at the end of the day he would reflect back on the day and that became kind of the discussion that started the next day and so it was this ongoing thread of discussion throughout the whole day and there's no there's no rules there's no you have to say this or thank him for this or talk about this or don't talk about that or Use this particular language. It's this relationship with a loving Father in heaven. I think that's what the Zoramites had perverted, as they turned it into this rote, segmented, scheduled, formalized prayer. When prayer was never meant to be that. It was meant to be crying unto God in your fields or in the operating room and having Him talk to you.
1: and in, in Alma thirty-four twenty-seven, yea, and when you do not cry unto the Lord. Let your hearts be full drawn out in prayer unto him continually for your welfare and also for the welfare of those who are around you. That's
0: it. That's it. The second perversion that they've overcomplicated their relationship with Christ. These are some of my favorite verses um, in these chapters, maybe even all the Book of Mormon. 34 verse 14. Behold, this is the whole meaning of the law. Every wit pointing to that great and last sacrifice. And that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal. And thus he shall bring salvation to all those who shall believe on his name. This being the intent of this last sacrifice, to bring about the bowels of mercy, which overpower justice, and bring about means unto men, that they may have faith unto repentance. Thus mercy can satisfy the demands of justice, and encircles them in the arms of safety." We've trodden this ground before as a podcast, but it's worth repeating. The purpose of the atonement of Christ was to empower and enable him to overcome justice and to be filled with mercy. He is a powerful God who is mighty to save, and sometimes we forget that. We fill life with check boxes and to do lists and steps and requirements and forget that we're dealing with an all-powerful God who is enabled by his atonement to have mercy and compassion on us. It's not a complicated relationship. It's very, very simple. This has become one of my more favorite quotes from Elder Bednar. I am acquainted with church members who accept as true the doctrine and principles contained in the scriptures and proclaim from this pulpit, and yet they have a hard time believing those gospel truths apply specifically in their lives and to their circumstances. They seem to have faith in the Savior, but they do not believe his promised blessings are available to them or can operate in their lives. The Zoramites have overcomplicated their relationship with God, with Christ, and the truth of it is we're dealing with a very loving, extremely merciful, and compassionate Jesus Christ who is powerful enough to save us if we will but believe in him and follow him. It's that simple.
1: I think sometimes to uncomplicate my faith complications is just to remember that through these prophets and apostles, we are learning more about Jesus Christ through the Book of Mormon. It teaches us who Jesus Christ is. It teaches so much about what he did for us. Um, President Nelson says here, again from his last conference talk on Revelation, we are followers of Jesus Christ. The most important truth the Holy Ghost will ever witness to you is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He lives. And that testimony comes as we uncomplicate who he is and turn to God and Jesus Christ in prayer to understand who they are and where our faith should be.
0: Alma 3417 Therefore may God grant unto you, my brethren, that you may begin to exercise your faith unto repentance, that you begin to call upon his holy name, that he would have mercy upon you. That's the simple combination of prayer and our relationship with Christ. So please, don't let the perversions of the world or sometimes even perversions of our own minds uh, twist you into believing that prayer is something that needs to be formalized and ritualized or that our relationship with Christ is complicated. Prayer is an ongoing, daily, minutely, loving discussion with the Father in Heaven, who then helps us have a very real and very forgiving and merciful relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ.
1: Thanks for listening. We hope you have a great week, and we hope that you're able to put into practice some of these things that we talked about today, and that maybe you will give the World Cup a try. Go Belgium! If you haven't already watched it. Have a great week.